At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll talk about The Nation's new podcast. It's called Next Left, hosted by John Nichols, and it features extended interviews with leading progressives elected to office across America. In the premiere episode, out Tuesday, John speaks with Ilhan Omar. We'll talk with him about her, and we'll listen to some clips. Also, the parts of the Mueller report we are not being allowed to see. They're part of a larger problem of government secrecy that's threatening to cripple our democracy. Karen Greenberg will comment. But first, Bernie is back on page one of the New York Times, our national newspaper of record. But their report last weekend was not about his new plan to save public schools, the most progressive education program in modern American history. It was not about his proposal to end all subsidies for oil and gas companies. Instead, it was about a trip he made to Nicaragua in 1985, more than 30 years ago. They thought it was, in their words, quote, a trip that might have unsettled another visitor, close quote. In other words, they didn't like it. How do we explain the New York Times coverage of Bernie Sanders? For comment, we turn to Amy Willens. She was Jerusalem correspondent for The New Yorker. She's best known for her reporting on Haiti, especially her award-winning book, Farewell, Fred Voodoo. And she's a longtime contributing editor at The Nation. Amy, welcome back. Thanks, John. Well, what was the big news in the New York Times page one story last weekend about Bernie? What was their lead? The biggest news in the story was that Bernie was at a rally uh, for the Sandinistas where there was a chant that came up from the crowd. It went like this, here, there, and everywhere, the Yankee will die. And Bernie observed this chant and... It was chanted while he was at the, at the rally. We don't know what he observed or didn't observe. I have to ask, is this really news? Our colleague at The Nation, Eric Alterman in a March 28th column, discussed this very same Sandinista rally that Bernie attended in 85. Is this really news now? It's strange. Alterman quoted it and said uh, that the Republicans are claiming that they have footage of this rally, maybe of Bernie Sanders at the rally. So he quoted it a few months ago, and the New York Times failed to take notice. Eric Alterman got this from Newsweek in 2016 when the same exact information was presented. And Google is a wonderful thing. Michelle Goldberg, now New York Times op-ed columnist, quoted this same line in 2016 in May during the primary, saying this is what a Republican attack on Bernie Sanders would look like. So this was already a story in 2016, but at that point the story was what the right will do to Bernie if he wins the nomination. But now it's the New York Times taking Bernie down 
so concerned must they be that he not get the nomination. The Times, by the way, has a bit of a history with Bernie and the news. And I would say, having followed it, that they have been consistently negative about his entry into national politics. So this is a story where the Times put a huge amount of work into doing research on the period when Bernie was mayor of Burlington, Vermont in the mid-80s. They devoted a total of 4,500 words to this trip Bernie made to Nicaragua in 1985, which they said their source was a study that they did of, quote, hundreds of speeches, handwritten notes, letters, political pamphlets, and domestic and foreign newspaper clippings from a period spanning nearly a decade when he was mayor of Burlington. And all they got was this lousy (laughs) (laughs) T-shirt. Yeah, it is the kind of project that really only the Times undertakes these days. And nevertheless, this is all they found? All they got was a story from at least two years ago, three years ago, really. It's amazing. As they say, Burlington before Sanders was a sleepy college town. So maybe there was not much happening in Burlington during those 10 years that they examined so closely other than Bernie going to a rally. And of course, the story here is that left-wing mayors in many towns in America, especially during the Reagan years, had a, quote, foreign policy. Santa Cruz did, Santa Monica did, Davis, California did. This was not really an unusual thing. The Times, though, is very focused on the politics of the Sandinistas. Who were the Sandinistas? Who was Daniel Ortega? They go to an expert who says Mr. Sanders should have known better than to, quote, fawn over Mr. Ortega. So this guy was a former Reagan uh, advisor who helped oversee uh, Latin American policy for the Reagan administration in precisely Nicaragua. He's obviously not an objective expert, even if he's been, you know, sort of run through the think tank mill and made so. This is a sort of a historical question. A leftist mayor in 1985 supported the Sandinistas. Remind us who the Sandinistas were, which is what the New York Times seems to have forgotten. So the Sandinistas were a group who were trying to overthrow the uh, dictatorship of the U.S.-backed Anastasia Somoza. And eventually... They succeeded, and this, of course, became an issue in American politics with one side fearing that they were communists who would be supported by the Soviet Union and the other side hoping for a more progressive rule in Latin America. Then when Reagan was elected in 1980 with his hardline anti-communism, he wanted to intervene in all these Latin American countries where similar things were happening. And uh, Nicaragua and the Sandinistas became a central issue in American politics. The Times researchers showed the thoroughness of their work on what Bernie did in 1985. Apparently, they not only studied, you know, memos from local meetings, but also boarding passes. Because this is what they, this is how they skewer Sanders' trip to Nicaragua. Sanders, and I quote, journeyed for 14 hours to reach Nicaragua. Switching planes, this is from the New York Times, in Boston, Miami, and San Salvador, and made a truncated tour of the violence-stricken country before the grand event in Managua. 
the grand event is the place where the the chant was chanted. You can see the depth and detail of their reporting by that Boston, Miami, and San Salvador stops. As if there's something wrong with taking 14 hours to get from Burlington, Vermont, to Managua, Nicaragua. After this report on Bernie's days as mayor of Burlington, when he made the college town into, quote, a haven for left-wing activism, after this appeared on page one of the New York Times over the weekend, Bernie called the Times and asked for a chance to reply, and they published another couple of thousand words of an interview with Bernie about this piece. Just to be fair, he had declined to be interviewed about the piece beforehand, no doubt being so irritated that it was being even reported on at this point. So the interview is remarkable in many ways. Bernie sort of provides a history lesson, like we have done here, who were the Contras, who were the Sandinistas, what was Reagan's foreign policy. The New York Times reporter who's questioning him, Sidney Ember, says, uh, If you heard the crowd chanting, the Yankee will die, would you have stayed at the rally? And his answer is, I think, Sidney, with all due respect, you don't understand a word I am saying. This interview itself then generated a whole new batch of commentary. Yes, rather than focusing on the, I think, important content of this conversation between Sidney Ember and Bernie Sanders and also the initial story and what that meant about the New York Times and the election and Bernie Sanders and their reporting. A bunch of people on Twitter focused instead on the fact that Sidney Ember is a female Sidney Ember, not a male Sidney Ember. And she's a young woman reporter and many women Uh, showed up on Twitter to denounce Bernie for saying, with all due respect, do you even understand what I'm talking about? Yet, for me, as a person who actually lived through this moment in American history, when I read the New York Times story, the first thing I said was, does this reporter even know anything about this period in time? So Bernie's response seemed to me pretty fair. But to a lot of women, it seemed like a diss to to women, like he wouldn't have done it to a male reporter, I wonder. This is an example of how uh, gender politics and identity politics, which I utterly sympathize with in so many ways, can divert what is an important conversation that needs to be had by pointing out, you know, stupid or unnuanced attitudes in people's social behavior when there's actually an important current in American history and an issue about American foreign policy that's being discussed here. The part about the Bernie Sanders interview that bothered me the most was Sidney Ember asking him, after he has explained Reagan foreign policy in the 1980s, she asked him, is there anything you believed about Latin America or the Soviet Union in the 1980s that you no longer believe today? Bernie's answer is, no, the Soviet Union was an authoritarian dictatorship. That's what I believed then. That's what I believe is the case today. End of story. But the question, I have to say, as an old white historian of this period, that's a question from the HUAC days, the anti-communist investigations of the 50s, where you were required to say you have changed your mind about communism, radicalism, union organizing, 
and now you support the rightness of American policy. Again, I'm sure Sidney Ember has no idea what this question sounds like. And that is, it wasn't just HUAC that used to ask those questions. All sorts of interrogation groups all over the world asked that question. Have you changed your mind? Do you repudiate? Do you renounce? Put it on paper and sign it. So in conclusion, why do you think the New York Times did this? Let us speculate. They're freaking out. First of all, Bernie has a lot of money and a lot of support. And the New York Times is freaking out. They don't agree with his progressive, socialist-based agenda. They maybe don't agree with the education policy he's outlining. They maybe don't agree with uh, free tuition to college. There are a lot of things that he supports that the New York Times might find disconcerting or too progressive, or they may feel that he'd be vulnerable in the election to be generous to them. Now, in the traditional conception of the mainstream newspaper, the editorial page expresses support or opposition to candidates, and the news pages are supposed to take a different approach. Yes, and if you read the initial story, as well as the interview, there is a decided bias against Sanders and against everything he stood for at that time and against everything he stands for now. There's just no way around it. You could pretend that these are the facts, ma'am, but they're not the facts. They're slanted. But I think, to be a tiny bit fair to the New York Times, they slant on every side of of the political spectrum right now. And certainly President Trump has been the victim of seeping opinion. That's what I call it, seeping opinion, which seeps right into the news pages. But we don't really mind when the victim is President Trump, who has all the power in the country. But it's disturbing to see this kind of non-factual slant go into the news when it's someone you've thought about a lot. And I'm not saying that I'm a Sanders supporter or that I would vote for him. But when I see this kind of thing that is so ahistorical and yet so slanted, I find it very disturbing. And I think the New York Times should just come out and put it on their editorial page. Amy Willens being a little bit fair to the New York Times. Amy, thanks for coming in today. Thank you, John. Now it's time for our Washington political update. And for that, we turn, of course, to John Nichols. He's the nation's national affairs correspondent. And he's also a host of a new podcast from The Nation. John, welcome back. It's great to be with you. Well, before we talk about your new podcast, it's called Next Left. We want to spend a couple of minutes on the fact that the first Republican in Congress has said that Donald Trump has engaged in impeachable conduct. His name is Justin Amash. Who is he? Well, he's a pretty remarkable guy by any measure. And the funny thing is I've been writing about him for years because he is the go-to Republican in the House of Representatives for progressive Democrats on issues of war and peace. He has worked with Barbara Lee, Mark Pocan, Pramia Jayapal, Ro Khanna, on issues of civil liberties. He has worked with, you know, many of the key players in the Congressional Progressive Caucus to defend civil liberties, even on some immigrant rights issues. And uh, not that he's particularly good on those things, but when the president was running around 
declaring a national emergency to try and justify taking money to build its wall. Amash was the rare Republican who really aggressively stood up and said, this is, this is really an abuse of power. So he's someone who has often split with his own party, but unlike some of the, you know, kind of casual analysis of this, that sees him as a headline seeker, which he definitely is not, uh, or as, you know, maybe like a moderate Republican or, or, you know, kind of like something a little more like a Mitt Romney type or something like that. No, this guy is a hardcore, deep rooted, you know, internally wired conservative. In, in his statement, he said the Mueller report presents, quote, multiple examples of conduct satisfying all the elements of obstruction of justice, close quote. And he also says, quote, Attorney General Barr has deliberately misrepresented Mueller's report, close quote, something that you have said on this show and that we agree with. But it is remarkable that he is the only Republican who has said these things. There is a tendency to think that in the past, Republicans have been a whole lot better. And that's a bit of a misnomer. During the Watergate era, the Republicans in the House of Representatives remained remarkably loyal to Richard Nixon to the bitter end. It's we now celebrate and make a big deal about the handful of Republicans who stepped up and really challenged Nixon. But it's important to remember that even on the House Judiciary Committee, where you had some of the most explicit criticism of Nixon and, and some Republicans stepping up for impeachment, that uh, no article of impeachment against Richard Nixon has passed through the House Judiciary they got the support of a majority of Republicans, even on the committee. And in, on two of the proposed articles, no Republicans voted for them. Uh, one got two Republican votes, and then a couple of others got some more. But this is uh, the only reason I bring up this history is to say that, to my view, Amash stepping up is a very, very big deal. Because it's not really about a mass of Republicans coming across the line. It is that a few begin to raise the objection. He is the first. If by some chance he is joined at some point by another Republican or two or three, I think that's a, something that's very, very powerful from a historical standpoint and in the contemporary moment. Well, let's talk about the other big topic for us today, Big news at The Nation and in Podcastville. The magazine has launched a new podcast with you, John Nichols, as the host. It's called Next Left. And unlike this podcast, Start Making Sense, it's not about this week's headlines. It doesn't feature the magazine's writers and editors as guests. What is its focus? We're in an era where podcasts are a big deal and they become a vehicle by which we look at many different uh, topics in many different ways. This podcast tries to look at the rising generation of political figures who have won local, state, and national office as insurgents, people who are 
challenging the status quo, not just within the Democratic Party, although frequently so, but also the status quo of our politics in general. And so we're very interested in the folks who, usually younger, but not always, who say that they're just no longer prepared to wait for their moment, Uh, the folks who say that they're no longer satisfied with the limits of our politics, and who are ready to push for much bigger and, frankly, much more radical ideas, and, frankly, who are pushing for the sorts of changes that I, as a host, happen to believe are necessary in our politics and in our governments. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a celebration of insurgency in many senses, but it also tries to do something else, and that is to get to know these people, to understand where they're coming from, because it's our sense at the nation that, by and large, the rising generation of insurgent political figures has not been covered well. They tend to be covered more in their clashes with the president or um, with political elites rather than uh, as who they really are. And to our view, these are some remarkable people. Well, your guest for the premiere episode, which is posted Tuesday at thenation.com, is Ilhan Omar. We have a couple of clips from that interview, but before we get to those, I just want to set the scene here for a minute. She's, of course, been under relentless attack for the last couple of months. Trump has been tweeting at her. She gets death threats all the time. And then you come along. What was it like sitting down with her face to face? Well, I've covered her some. So in many cases, the folks that we interview, um, be they members of Congress or state legislators, city council members around the country, are folks that we have given some coverage to. So I I was not surprised to find that she did not fit the stereotype that President Trump and Liz Cheney and others have tried to create. She is a exceptionally able political figure who defeated an incumbent state legislator to get elected to the legislature in 2016, then won a primary uh, to get elected to Congress in 2018, and has withstood everything that's been thrown at her. She's also someone with a deep sense of political history and political possibility. When you go into her office, there are two pictures that have prominence as you walk in. One, the lower of the two, is a picture of her being sworn in, the first woman of color to serve in Congress from Minnesota, the first Somali-American, the first naturalized African citizen, and one of the two first Muslim-American women, the first woman to wear a hijab in Congress. You know, I mean, all these firsts, right? And so she's her picture's there. But above her picture is a picture of Shirley Chisholm, the first African-American woman elected to Congress 50 years before Ilhan Omar. Yeah, so she's, she, I guess, to my mind, that, that juxtaposition summed up a lot. So let's listen, Ilhan Omar, on her political goals from the Next Left podcast, the new podcast from The Nation. We don't have to settle. We can fight to, to, to have our uh, Green New Deal. We can certainly get Medicare for all. We can cancel out student debt. We can certainly pass our our housing for all bill. We can get universal school meals program up and running. 
But in order to do all of those things, we have to stop policing the world, right? We, we have to not have, you know, over 800 bases, military bases around the world. We have to not spend 57 cents on the dollar on defense um, while we cut education and healthcare um, and housing funding. You also talked about with Ilhan Omar about her life before she was elected, about coming to America from Somalia as a kid with her family, about how her father first got a job at the airport. Indeed, when you land at MSP Airport, all of the people driving carts, pushing wheelchairs, almost all of them are Somali or Ethiopian. Uh, One of those was her father. And then her father got a job at the post office. Let's listen to what she told you then. It was it was a great job, and and he loved it. You know, um, he's a night owl like I am, and so he often worked a night shift. And I I worked with him one winter, uh, my junior year, going into senior year. Is it high school? Or in high school, you were a postal um, worker. I I did. I worked All at right. the post office um, because I, I I needed to get a car. Um, this is the thing you do when you're a senior. Um, and my dad believed that you had to earn everything that you had in life and uh, told me I had to work and that he was going to help find me a job that could could get me, you know, enough money to, to get my first car. And if I fell short, he'd help. And so I worked a, a night shift. I would I would go in and come out at um, 7 a.m. in the morning and go to school uh, and, and be present for my 8.20 a.m. class. And I, I did that for, for six weeks and earned enough um, for him to supplement. What kind, of car, get, what kind of car did you get? I got uh, a two-door red Cavalier. Nice. All yeah. Right, yeah. Good American-made car. And Enjoyed it for a little bit. Benefited from a union <laughs> work did. setting. Yeah. Got a good American-made car. Did you have yeah. a decent radio? It, it did. Yeah. It what did you listen? I, what music did you listen to? Everything. Really? Everything. I, yeah. I I kind of really listen to you know I'm I'm a huge fan of pop music obviously but I I, I enjoy rock I I I have surprise surprising to many people a huge love for country music and I also just love Somali music. John Nichols talking with Ilhan Omar on the new Next Left podcast from The Nation. What's coming up on future episodes of Next Left? Well, it's, it's a lot of it really interesting folks. Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, uh, the other Muslim-American woman in Congress, had a great conversation with us. In fact, we talked with her literally the day after President Trump and Liz Cheney and everybody went after her. Uh, and yet, we didn't. one of the things we try to do on this podcast is not to talk about the, of the moment, controversy. We want to, we really want to get to know these people. So we spent a lot of time talking about her experience coming up in Detroit. We also will feature Lee Carter, the very passionate socialist uh, member of the state legislature in Virginia. Uh, Rosanna Rodriguez Sanchez, a newly elected city council member in Chicago, whose roots are in Puerto Rico. And and our conversation was a a fabulous mix, is it will be a fabulous mix of conversation about the experience in the Latino community in Chicago, but also uh, the struggles of Puerto Rico. And she blends these things brilliantly, as so many of these folks do. So we've got a lot of, a lot of good folks coming up. 
So we've been talking here about the Next Left podcast from The Nation, hosted by John Nichols. This week, it features a fascinating interview with Ilhan Omar. You can listen at thenation.com. You can subscribe at iTunes Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. John, congrats on the new podcast, and thanks for talking with us today. I'm honored to be with you, and I hope we do as well as you have. We're still thinking about the Mueller report and the parts we have not been allowed to see. It's not the only government document with blacked-out parts. Are all of those redactions really necessary to protect our national security? Or are they part of a cover-up, maybe of crimes by our leaders or of actions that would embarrass the president or his appointees? Karen Greenberg has been thinking about that. She's director of the Center on National Security at Fordham Law and author of the book Rogue Justice, The Making of the Security State. She's also a regular contributor to Tom Dispatch and The Nation, and she also writes for the L.A. Times op-ed page. Karen Greenberg, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Well, the Mueller report is 448 pages long. How many redactions are there in it? Yeah, there's just about 1,000 redactions um, on about 40% of its pages. So um, I would say that's a considerable amount of redactions. Now, they have to give reasons for every redaction. What have they told us about why these 1,000 passages were not allowed to see? They told us a variety of things, basically four categories, but what they actually come down to is um, grand jury material that they say can't be reported um, and things that would tell you about other um, sources or compromised sources. So it's kind of the standard thing that you hear when we when they tell us why things are withheld, why things are redacted. And it's um, confusing, intentionally confusing, and it sounds like they're telling you specifics, but these are actually can be very broad categories. You know, what is it from the grand jury that had to be redacted? What is it that had to be redacted about a person? How many persons might it have compromised or given us too much information on? What it would tell us about, you know, one of the things they're worried about is ongoing investigations and how it might compromise ongoing investigations. Those can be very, very large categories. And what you'd really like are more narrow, more specific, um, and, and therefore more illuminating categories about why they needed to redact. And where do we stand today on the effort by the House Judiciary Committee to see the full report? Well, it doesn't look like they are going to be able to see the full report. You know that Jerry Nadler has been very insistent that he wants to see it, um, and he hasn't been able to get the uh, response he needs. And this is all part of just a larger attempt by this government to basically say the public does not have a right to see uh, certain things, and in particular things about the president and this administration. And this problem of excessive secrecy of blacked-out pages in government documents it isn't just the Trump administration that's guilty of this. These are the, just the latest examples of a problem that goes back long before Trump. And in your piece for The Nation and for the L.A. Times, you have cited some of the more notorious examples of withholding information from the public. One of the most important to me was the 9-11 Commission report on the World Trade Center attacks had some deletions. 
Right. It was on the joint congressional inquiry into basically the failures to prevent al-Qaeda's attacks on 9-11. And there were 28 pages about Saudi Arabia that were blackened out um, in, in the report and, you know, for years. And so it set the template, I think, for a lot of, of opening the door to the idea that redactions came hand in hand with what we were and weren't going to know about the war on terror from before 9-11 all the way through uh, to the present day. But it's certainly not the only time in American history that things have been redacted. And I think it's important to say there are certain things that need to be classified. There are certain things that that do... um, protect national security. And the, when, you, when you expand that category so wide, wide that you um, make people doubt that you're doing it for really for national security as to, you alluded before, to um, not embarrassing um, a government, not letting illegal and extra legal activities that went on by the government at, at the hands of the government be exposed. Then you begin to erode the public trust in the government saying, we have the right to classify, this is what we're classifying, and this is why. And so it's not just about the withdrawal of information. It's about the very fragile, at times, uh, conversation that goes on between a government and its citizenry. And in the United States, we have a wonderful law, the Freedom of Information Act, It says that in a democracy, not only does the government belong to the people, but the government's information belongs to the people. And according to the Freedom of Information Act, the government has an obligation to give any person, not just citizens, any person, any information in government files that they request, unless unless it falls under that small number of areas, which... We all agree should be exempt, personal privacy. I'm not allowed to see your tax returns, national security information, which if released would endanger the national security of the United States. Those are the biggest ones. You have looked at how much classification is going on now, how many pages reviewed under the Freedom of Information Act are being have been withheld lately. What did you find? So what's really interesting about this is how much classification uh, grew exponentially after 9-11. Between 2001 and 2005, the number of government documents classified per year actually doubled, and it has kept going apace, even during um, Barack Obama's time. And, and you know, President Obama made it very clear when he came into office that he wanted to reverse this sense of more and more government secrecy and to have as much transparency as possible. And it, it really turned out that the, the mechanisms that produce this kind of classification and overclassification just stayed just stayed in place. And so we dealing now in a world where there is the the re- I think the way it feels is that the safe thing to do is to classify. And the um and the penalty for overclassifying is what? Nothing. And so if you're a, an official and you're in the position of classify or not classify, it seems that the decision goes towards classification. That's how it feels on the end of this in- exponentially increasing number of government documents. Yeah, I learned from your work that the number of documents classified secret or top secret under Obama is 77 million. How is it possible to stamp top secret on 77 million pages? 
Well, it's a lot of different agencies and a lot of different departments, and it's a very good question. I mean, you think about the the number of um, work hours that are dedicated to this kind of classification, and it tells you something about what has happened to our government. We've learned from other sources that some of the official claims of national security exemptions actually conceal misconduct, violation of the law, war crimes by Americans. For instance, the reports on CIA torture at black sites were withheld from government documents. We learned about them from other sources. So this is where my interest in the redaction first first came into being, which was looking at the materials on torture, the memos that had authorized it, the reports that were written by the military about Abu Ghraib, and then later ones that were written about the, the CIA-enhanced interrogation program. And more and more what you'd find was uh, redaction after redaction after redaction. And just to your point is, don't we need to know as a country what we've done so we can think about either how to redress it or how to address our allies or to understand our standing in the world. I mean, there are, there are vast uh, ramifications of having this kind of secrecy about what we've done to others in the world. Um, and so this, is, this has been going on in a way that I think we've gotten rather complacent about it. Um, and look, the torture report um, that was done by the Senate, we never got to see. We've seen 600-page executive summary, but we haven't seen the rest of it. We know that, um, that tapes were destroyed uh, at the command of a high official in the uh, Central Intelligence Agency about um, that that documented um, the torture itself. So the erasing the record uh, for reasons of not letting people know what was done in their name as citizens of the United States um, has been a consistent theme uh, since the beginning, at least since the beginning of the war on terror. And how's it going under Trump? Well, now... Now, this is a whole different level because in addition to having um, an issue of redactions, as you brought up in in the Mueller report, we have a a profound and pervasive sense that information, that the American people don't deserve to have information and there's no legitimacy to their having to have information. What you're seeing going on right now with executive privilege, people not testifying before Congress, whether it's Don McGahn or whoever it is, then you're starting to see the, the bottom line there. The the statement in the background is, we don't need to tell anybody. We don't need to have our information out there. We can protect ourselves from that. That is pernicious road to go down. And it has everything to do with journalists and, you know, how important their mission becomes to try to figure out what's going on. Um, And I think, therefore, in addition to redactions, the other side of this is the degradation of the press and the media. And it gets even worse under Trump. We've been talking here about preventing the public from learning what's in government records. Trump is starting a new policy of not even creating government records. I do think it's a major issue. I think... um one of the things that happened is there are categories of reporting that government has traditionally done as an act of um, reporting to the public that are no longer there. For example, the um, targeted killings and lethal drone use um, by the government, by the military. These were published under Obama. They are not published anymore. The same thing with civilian casualties, not wanting to report civilian casualties, which has always been problematic, but taking it to a new level, which is we're not going to 
publish these. We're not going to record these. We're not going to have these anymore. And which also brings us to the point of, as you know, President Trump has on many times made it clear that he thinks that people at his meetings, at meetings with him who take notes, are violating some kind of code, when in fact, the responsible thing to do, for example, if you're a lawyer, is to take notes, to be able to refer to them, to be able to create a record of fact. The undermining of of a record, the undermining of facts, is actually something that is, is important to a society's narrative, to the consciousness of a culture, um, and all of this is being intentionally compromised. Karen Greenberg, she wrote about the spread of government secrecy for Tom Dispatch, also for the LA Times and The Nation. Thank you, Karen. Thank you so much. Start Making Sense, the Nation podcast, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. Our recording engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is the nation's engagement editor. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and now at Google Play. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure.